16, we begin the last chapter of this book. I probably will uh, move over and do the book of Matthew, just for change, since this is, uh, took so long to get through 1 Corinthians. Instead of moving into 2 Corinthians, I'll go back to Matthew, give us a break, and deal with one of the Gospels, and then uh, come back and do 2 Corinthians after that. So that's kind of my plan at this point. Uh, but Second Corinthians is uh, a great book, and I'm not doing it uh, really just to kind of change the pace because I remember uh, going through some of the great difficulties I had in, in New York. Uh, I was going through many of the things that Paul was going through as he wrote that book, and so it has a kind of a special place in uh, my heart, uh, and, and so I know it'll be good for us. Uh, today we want to look at uh, the, the concerning collections. Uh, this, just to remind ourselves though, as we finish chapter 15, we have used that, of course that's really what the book is about, the second coming, because that is when we shall be resurrected and receive our glorified bodies, and so we have taken time to look at the several places in the New Testament that speak about what is next on the Lord's calendar, um, coming back from the dead saints, um, the, the the first thing is that he's coming back with the dead saints to give the dead and the living saints their glorified bodies. And then at that time, the dead who are lost will also be raised and given bodies uh, to suffer in hell forever. We see this in John 5:28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So again, this is a verse that we have not looked at yet, uh, what we did when we went through John, but it says the hour is coming when two things will happen. The uh, just shall be raised to life, and the lost shall be raised to judgment. That will happen at the same time. So again, our theology, our eschatology, must fit into that, or we know it's somewhere we've uh, gone awry. Um, then, the uh, third thing that will happen when he comes back, he will dissolve the earth and heavens and create them anew, and we saw that in Second Peter 3.10. I want to, I'm reading this again, because it also, we see Peter making the same point that Paul is making in relationship to our resurrection. It says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. So the day that we're waiting for, the day of the Lord, when he comes as a thief in the night to take us to be with himself, then the heavens will pass away in a, with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in them will be exposed. That, that's basically a, a way of saying judgment. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, since everything in this world, physically speaking, is to be, uh, is temporal, it's not gonna last past death or past its second coming, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? The same point that Paul made. Waiting for and hasting the coming of the day of the Lord because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they are burned. So we are waiting for the coming of the Lord, when, and in that day, the heavenly bodies will melt and be burnt. 
But according to his promise, we who we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That plays a huge part in my eschatology. And uh, I, I think it pretty well speaks for itself. And so we see, though, him making that same point that because we know that Christ is coming back and that we shall be called to meet him in the air with our resurrected bodies, that should affect the way we live. And in a way in which it makes us godly, right? Paul and Peter both make that point. And so Paul now here changes direction pretty abruptly in chapter 16. And this is good because we're reminded that the glory of the future doesn't release us from present day duty. And instead gives us reason and power for it. Uh, the fact that Christ could come back at any moment or that we could die at any moment and uh, that... Uh, we shall uh, be with him, does not in any way change anything, because Paul says, yes, all that's going to take place, but we still have some needs here that we need to take care of. And so he goes into that in chapter 16. <clears throat> so I think it's, it's kind of interesting, that uh, the, the, the placement here. Uh, we didn't read, we cut off at verse 13, but in 2 Peter 3, 14, notice again what Peter says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. It's kind of what Paul's doing here. Yes, while we're waiting for the Lord to come back, we've got some saints in Jerusalem who, because of their persecution, are in dire straits, and we need to take care of them. And so we need to take up this offering. So a very interesting, I think, segue to some degree. And so in verse 1, we're, we're going to present this text as instructions to Christian giving as a duty before the Lord that begins at church. Now, obviously up front here, this is not weekly giving, uh, but it's to, be, uh, it's, it's, in, it's to be in conjunction with that. You've got saints in Jerusalem who are in dire need. So he says, as you come together for your worship on Sunday morning, uh, and you, that's when you would ordinarily give, of course, your tithes and offerings. He says, if you can, voluntarily uh, lay aside something each week, uh, you know, as the Lord blesses you, and, and, you know, you can turn it into church or whatever, but, you know, lay up something, and then when I get there, I'm not going to try to, uh, you know, pound, the, try to get everybody to empty the pockets. I'm not going to make a big plea for gifts. Whatever you, the Lord has led you to take up, when I get there, you give it to me and I'll take it down to Jerusalem. And so he's not uh, gonna try to beat the, beat the money out of him or anything like that. He's just, he's just uh, saying, look, as the Lord leads, discipline yourself, think about it ahead of time, and lay aside something if you can. This is a legitimate need. These people were in dire straits. As I said, they are being persecuted. They had uh, many of them had take everything had been taken from them. This is real need. This isn't this isn't charity work. Uh, people who uh, don't want to work and find themselves in problems. You know, these are people who had served the Lord faithfully and were suffering for it. And so, the first thing I want to address is how we can do that, since uh, Paul, you know, how we can kind of move from this taking up an offering for charity in this sense 
to also make application to our weekly giving. And I'm going to try to, to make that connection. Uh, and so um, I want to address how we can do that. Clearly the reference to the collection of the saints means that there was something that they already knew about. And while the instructions here have mostly to do with the special collection for the saints in Jerusalem, this was done at the time they normally gave. He's clearly talking about it in the conjunction with that. So he's building on the tradition began in the early church as seen in Acts. I didn't put it on the screen, but let me just read it to you over in Acts chapter 4. Starting in verse 34, it says, There was not a needy person among them. This was the uh, Jerusalem church. Remember, as they were, uh, as persecution began, uh, all the needs were taken care of. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now remember, this was not saying that the church is to be a big commune and as people, you know, we're not a cult and so as people come in, you just turn over your money to us and we'll give it back to you as you see fit. That's communism and the Bible does not teach communism. But what's going on here is a special situation. It's as if uh, our faith had been outlawed and because of our testimony, some of us had lost our jobs. Others had lost our houses, or income. Uh, there was uh, things like that going on. And now you've got not need because somebody has overspent and can't pay the bills. Not a need because somebody has become a drug addict or an alcoholic. And so they no longer uh, can take care of themselves. These are people who have real needs. Like if someone's house burnt down. Uh, that's not their fault. That, that's the Lord's doing. And Paul says, look, we have an obligation. In fact, he's told the Gentile church, uh, that you have a, to some degree an obligation to the Jews in Jerusalem because that's where Christ came from. So there's an obligation there. But they're your Christian brothers and sisters. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But there's an obligation here. <clears throat> he's building on this. this, uh, this but if, we see here in Acts, at the first day of the week, when they would come, when they began to meet, because the church early on began to meet on Sundays, it was a time in which they would bring what they had and they would give it to the church. <clears throat> now, while we're not told when they officially began to meet on Sunday, because in Acts 2, they we know we know they met kind of initially just daily, because there were so many people, there, they, they were, hadn't got organized completely yet, and they were just kind of meeting whenever they could. Um, by Acts 20, we see that Sunday had become the normal day of church gathering. It says there on the uh, first day of the week when we were gathered <clears throat> together to break bread, and that was really a euphemism for the Lord's table that, 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 and for, of course, a meeting together for church. And Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day and he prolonged the speech until midnight. I like that verse because it kind of gives me, it sets a precedent for me. If I preach till midnight, well, Paul did it, so no complaining. Now, of course, he also had people fall asleep and, and fall out the window and die, but we don't want to go there. So, suitably, we read in John, not only that Jesus arose on Sunday, but that he appeared the first time 
to the, his disciples on, on Sunday night, Sunday evening. It, it was a day that kind of changed in part to signify the change of covenants. The Sabbath, and a lot of Christians, because of their confused, I think, theology, uh, don't, don't really want to go here, but the Sabbath was the sign of the Old Covenant. If you go back and you read in, in Exodus, you find out that the Sabbath was instituted there when God created the covenant as the sign of the Sabbath. And it says as much. There's really no indication that anybody celebrated the Sabbath, perhaps even knew about the Sabbath, until Moses. You say, well, what about, you know, when God created the earth and he rested on the Sabbath and he made it holy? Well, yes, he did that. But there's no, it doesn't say that he told Adam about that. There's nothing in history that says that anybody was observing the Sabbath day until the Lord gave the covenant. And then they learned about uh, the Sabbath at that time. But it was, you know, all that aside, it was the sign of the, uh, of the old covenant. And now that the old covenant has passed away and we are in a new covenant, it only makes sense that we no longer celebrate the Sabbath, which was Saturday, and always was Saturday, but we celebrate the Lord's Day, because the Lord is the Lord of Sabbath. He, he's the fulfillment of all the Sabbath laws and what the, all those things signified. So that's the day that he arose. That's the day when, when all the, the, the plan of the age is to redeem man and to forgive us of our sins and to make us joint heirs with Christ was all, all came to a head at the resurrection. So we, we meet, as the early church did, on Sunday, if we can, in a, in a, in a culture and, and dictates you know, change, and you can't meet on Sunday, well, it'd be fine. But as a rule, that's always been the case. It's never been a real problem. You, know, you say, in China, you know, it, it's outlawed to be any time, so they meet when they can. But, um, you know, we, we meet on Sunday, though, to celebrate the new covenant, to celebrate Christ. And so it only makes sense, and that is when we would bring our Offerings to the Lord. And so, um, poverty uh, back in these days was even more rampant in the ancient world than today, certainly in America, where poverty primarily is uh, self-inflicted. There was no exception here. Uh, and a lot of the money it had was due to the gifts of, Jew, of Jews living elsewhere. The, 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 the Jerusalem saints lived for a while. It was all temporary. Remember, the church eventually was scattered. They, they just fled Jerusalem. Uh, but it was temporary during that time of persecution. Uh, they, they lived off the gifts of, of other Christians. And we add to this the persecution of the Christians and their plight generally were very poor monetarily because being a Christian often meant that. And so they initially set up a social program of sharing with each other. But obviously, you know, if you think about it, that can't last long. Because if you sell all you have and give to the church, you know, eventually you're going to run out of money. Then what do you do? So it was always going to be temporary. And it was in a, you know, in other words, if, if we were had, if we had like nuclear war, if I can just use a kind of a crazy extreme example, and life all of a sudden, the government broke down, civil government broke down, local government, uh, you know, there was no jobs out there. You would, nothing else about you would just do whatever you could do to survive. And you, you, your family and your church, family, you would help each other in, in that circumstance, right? That's kind of what's going on here. Is it, these were dire times. 
So it's not the norm. That's, that's kind of my point here, because some people try to use this to teach that, uh, the, you know, some sort of socialism. And that's not what's being taught here at all. Ultimately, sharing everything cannot last very long. And it's certainly not a teaching of scripture. Um, so we might notice that our text shows that they determined to bring the amount they wanted just as an axe. Remember, uh, in Acts, uh, where Ananias and Sapphira are struck dead for lying, you are free to sell your land or whatever and bring it and give it to the church. And you can bring any of it, all of it. It was up to you. But Ananias and Sapphira, when they saw uh, this one man do that, they thought, hey, we'll do that too, but we're going to pretend to, to give it all like he did, but we're not going to give it all. And of course, the Lord struck him dead for that. Because I think it speaks to the motivation there. But Paul says in Romans 15.27 that the Gentiles had a measure of obligation to help the Jewish Christians since they owed them in spiritual things. But even then, it was benevolent. It was never a, you have to do this or here's the amount you have to do. It was always give as uh, the Lord leads you, as you feel good about doing. True biblical giving, if you think about it, can't be forced, even though it is a duty, because no good, uh, to, to do good under constraint isn't really doing good. In other words, you know, there, there are some religious organizations who, you know, tell you, you, you got to give this amount, just 10% or whatever it is. And if you don't, you're going to be disciplined or you, whatever. Um, I mean, there's even places where it's posted up on the board, the bulletin board, you know, who are given what? Well, you know, that aside, is that the, the problem with all that is that if you give under constraint because you feel like it's your duty, then the Lord is not pleased. It doesn't mean that the Lord doesn't want us to do our duty and that we have an obligation to do our duty, but ultimately, if that's all the reason we're doing anything, then we're not doing it because we love the Lord, not doing it because we love the church or whatever. We're doing it out of duty, and, and that is not that is not true godliness. Giving is part of the duty of worship and service of God, and it has been so from the book of Genesis. But at the same time, if it isn't our joy and desire to give to the Lord's work, then I would say you've got bigger problems. In other words, you spend your money on those things that you want to spend your money on, those things that you enjoy. Now, yeah, we've got to spend our money on bills. I don't enjoy bills, but I enjoy the uh, whatever those bills are for, right? So I, I don't like paying my heating bill, but I enjoy having heat during the winter, right? But we spend our money on what we want to spend our money on, the things that we love. And so if we love the Lord and we love the Lord's work, clearly that would be one reason why we would give to the Lord. And the Lord says that he loves a cheerful giver. The church doesn't need non-joyful givers. We don't need to have bake sales and things like that because I don't want the world's money. Now, if someone gave us money, fine, the Lord... Love them to do that in some way, some even a lost person. That, that's it. But we're not going to go out there and ask the world for their money. And I don't even ask you to to give uh, money you don't want to give. The church doesn't need it because my God is too wonderful 
too glorious for me to say, look, you've got to give money to him. You've, you've got to worship him. You've got to serve him. No, if you, if you don't see the glory of it, then, then, then don't give. We don't need the money. And if we never have what many other churches have, that's okay. Because what, what we all we want is people to gladly give what they can, and, and let the Lord take care of that. And, 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 if, and if, if you're holding money that you should be giving, that's the Lord's business. He'll take care of it. I remember growing up, the preacher would always say, "If you don't pay your tithes, the Lord will get it another way." Well, well it very well might be, but the problem is, I don't like that motivation because. But to say, well, if you don't pay your tithes, you might have an unexpected medical bill this week. So you better pay your tithes. Well, I don't know that that's really, I don't, I don't, you see what I'm saying? I don't know, I don't like that. Give your tithes because you love the church and you love what we're doing and you love the Lord's work. And if you don't, ask God why you don't. Why, why, why don't things don't mean anything to you? Or go find a church that you can give happily to. That's okay too, because uh, the Lord doesn't need, uh, uh, He loves cheerful givers. That's the only giving that matters. And the other text reminds us that giving to the church isn't necessarily all the giving we will do, because remember the point of this is on top of what you give to the church, you've got people and saints and brothers and sisters in Christ in dire need and save it up. You know, I, I don't want to come and try to all of a sudden raised a bunch of money and everybody saw I didn't bring any money and I wasn't thinking about this. He said, plan ahead. And if you lay aside a little every week, then you would have, a, you could have some. So he's, he's expecting them to have some discipline. Not only to have a burden for the brothers and sisters of Christ, but to have enough discipline to say, look, I might not have much, but if I, you know, every week just lay aside a little bit or maybe Give the, a little bit to treasure and say, this is for the special needs. I'm giving it now so I don't spend it later. Um, then, then there'll be something. There'll be a significant gift by the end when he gets there. <clears throat> and you think about 1 John 3.17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So there's the duty. But it doesn't say you've got to do this, right? He says, look at your heart. And if you don't have a desire to help somebody that you can help when you can help, then you need to be worried about your salvation, right? He's saying there's something wrong with your love for the Lord. So I think it's very interesting. Um, Turn over to Galatians chapter 6. They want to put all this on the screen, but over in Galatians chapter 6, let's just read verses 6 through 10. <clears throat> Galatians 6, 6. One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, that is clearly in the church context. So again, we're, we're looking at, our, at the scriptural teaching, our duty, if you will. But, and again, we understand it because if we just tell people, do whatever you feel like, and we don't give direction, we don't say, well, this is what the Lord's will is, then we, we make things difficult too. So we, we need some law. We need some 
teaching from Scripture to let us know how the Lord wants things to be. And then we need to examine our heart to make sure to see, so that we can say, yes, I, I'm in full agreement with the Lord here. And here he says, the one who is taught, that is a congregation, the word, must share all good things with the one who teaches. And again, we're, it doesn't mean that every good thing you have, you've got to share with me. Uh, you have your things and I have my things and that's all well and good. I think the Bible elsewhere teaches that's good. But you were talking about the necessary things, obviously. Your support. Do not be deceived. So, so now he's going to get to the, um, to a little more of the, uh, uh, motivation. God is not mocked. For whatever you sow, that shall he also reap. For the one who sows is not to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. doesn't mean that you will have eternal life if you give, but he's just saying those who live for the flesh will receive temporal. Those who live for the, for the Lord will receive eternal reward. And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So, it's easy to grow weary, not, and not just on the subject of giving, but it's, it's, it's easy, easy to be to be weary of, of the, the struggle of being faithful to the Lord year after year can sometimes be wearisome. Not, not, not in a, our, we don't have joy in the Lord, but it, it's a struggle to perhaps be alienated from your family, to, to maybe not have the job you could have because you won't compromise, you know, whatever. But but don't be weary because the Lord is going to give rep, rep, recompense to all those things. And so back in our text in verse 2, while the purpose of giving is to help those in need and support the work of the Lord, our text also lays out some other important points, uh, such as the principles of giving. And the first one is, is pretty obvious. Uh, Sundays. Uh, when we meet, that would only make sense that you would do it when we would gather together. Now, in our day and age, you can, uh, we, you know, a lot of church websites have PayPal or something like that. Uh, so there's other ways you could do it, and we don't get sidetracked on all that. Although PayPal, it takes a little bit, so you'd rather you not use that if you could all it help. But um, it's just making the obvious case that um, God established a weekly cycle that man has always continued. Uh, and my point is that, as a rule, you get paid weekly. So that's when you would lay aside to the Lord. You would give to the Lord because if you say, well, I'll give later, I'll give at the end of the month, uh, you're going to end up finding reasons why you can't give then, right? So, so in other words, there's discipline here. It says, on the first day of the week, you give this. Because it's the Lord's. And don't say, well, I'm, I'll, I'll have to wait and see if I can pay the bills. This is not how it works. And I say that as someone who has gone through years of not making much money at all. And we never at, 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 at any point said, well, you know what? We, we can't give our time. I'm not sure about this. We just did it. And the Lord always took care of us. Now, that also meant not spending money we didn't have, and 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 uh, and understanding that uh, yeah, well, I've, I think I've told it maybe the story before of going to get a uh, to buy a house to get a mortgage at the, at the bank, 
And uh, they looked at my finances and said, well, we'll loan you this much money. Well, in my heart, I knew that, no, that's way more money than I could possibly afford to pay back because they didn't realize that 10% plus is going right to the Lord. They're looking at 100% of my income. And so I, I'm telling them, well, I, I, I can't pay that. I, I you know, I tied the church and no, I don't have that much money to work with. So anyway, we built that out. But that this is how my, this mentality. Uh, that's, that's who I am. I'm a Christian. And, and a Christian gives as Paul says there, as the Lord blesses you. So the, the principles here, it, it's, um, if the Lord doesn't give you much, then you're not going to be given much. And that's okay. But if the Lord gives you a lot, then you're going to be given more. That's who I am. And I don't apologize for that. I'm not bragging about that because that's not to say that I always I don't struggle sometimes with giving and, and with my attitude, you know, and, and so forth. I, you know, I struggle like anybody else. But I know, and I thank the Lord, the Lord and His grace that I was raised in a Christian family. From birth, that was just how it is. We got birthday money. Some of it went to the church. The principles got instilled in me. This isn't you know, you, kids, you, you give your kids birthday money and then they said, you go out and spend any way you want to. You're already setting them up to the mentality that what's mine is mine, not the Lord's. No, you've got some money here. Uh, some of this goes to the Lord because that's who we are as Christians. One thing this does is remind us that giving to the church is not a matter of waiting until the Spirit leads. You know, because this could be applied for all sorts of different reasons. But, you know, someone says, well, I'm waiting for the Spirit to lead me to do this or that. You see this book right here? That's the Spirit's leading. He's already told us what to do. You don't wait until he gives you a feeling that you now like what the Bible says. He's already led you through his word. And so we do it. He's inspired the passage. The Spirit is leading us. And when we don't immediately obey the Bible, it's not because the Spirit isn't leading us and hasn't led us. It's because we're resisting the Holy Spirit. And again, not everybody gets a weekly paycheck. So it's not saying that it has to be done every Sunday morning or whatever. But we're talking about, we're setting aside. It's part of our a process in paying the bills and in living, and in setting up a budget. And the point here is that is the giving is tied to our income. Giving is a natural part of worship, both in the Old Testament and New. So we should be sensitive to the needs of the church and our ministries and our part in being them, because in a very real sense, we worship God in tithes and offerings. And First uh, Peter chapter uh, 2 Verse 5 says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And, of course, that applies to a lot more than just giving, but everything we do is to be offered as a spiritual sacrifice of praise and worship to the Lord, of thanksgiving. And so that's who we are as priests. You know, we, we call ourselves priests, right? New Testament priest. Every believer is a priest. So what does that mean? Yeah, we have access to the Lord personally, right? But the, one of the duties of the priest was to offer up sacrifices. And that, that's to 
to be willing to suffer for the Lord, to, to be praising the Lord, to work for the Lord, to, to give to the Lord. All these things are sacrifices that we offer up. And so what our text says is that giving should be based on periodic, should not be based on periodic emotional appeals of feelings. Um, you know, in other words, I don't, as, we're not going to stand up here and beg people to give because that kind of loses the point, misses the point. It's not based on whether you're going to get a bonus or not at work. It's willing, it's regular, it's grateful commitment to of our possessions to the Lord and for his people and work. And it forces us to weekly be sensitive to where our money comes from and what it is for, which is something I think a lot of us need from time to time. Sometimes we get so full of life and spending and doing things that we forget that, well, there's I have other obligations here. So if we do this on a weekly basis, we never get too carried away in ourselves, right? I've never minded sermons, even before I ever started preaching. I never minded sermons on giving because, again, by the grace of God, that's just I always did it anyway. And that's just where our money goes. But secondly, then, we we also see here, too, who is to give. He says each one of them, all the saints of the church. Now, naturally, this would uh, mean all those who are making money. But it's speaking to the rich and to the poor. In other words, he's not saying, well, you know, if you're poor, whatever that means, you get off the hook. No, we don't expect the rich to uh, have to pay for everything. We're all in this together. So he says, everyone, no one is exempt from showing thankfulness to the Lord in this matter. Even though some clearly might be struggling more than others, we all can do something. Um, it's interesting that Jesus, as he's watching people put money into the temple treasury, and of course remember that the Old Testament saint had an obligation, well, the Old Testament saint or not, the Old Testament Jew had an obligation to give up to 30% or more of his income. Now, that included basically what we would call state taxes as well as temple taxes. But they had they had a great obligation. So that's, you know, even the Lord had no problem instituting those things. But it's interesting that Jesus, when he sees the widow, put in all that she had, which is only those two mites, that he commends her for her giving. He, he states that she gave all she owned, all that she had to live on. It doesn't. It wasn't saying that. Well, everybody has to do that. Again, you can't give all, or you would have nothing. But in her case, she'd have anything to start with. So she says, "What's good? What? What matter? What does it matter? She gave it all to the Lord. The Lord blessed her for that. So poverty is not an excuse not to worship God in giving." And in some ways, it's a way to serve beyond what the rich do, because the rich give what they don't need in a way in which we know that if you're struggling, everything you give is something you could use in more than a rich person, right? You understand that. But again, if you love the Lord, it's okay. But there's just, but, but I think it shows that a poor person, one who struggles to give is, is is honoring the Lord in a way that the rich person doesn't. You see, because it's a struggle for that person to do so. It's a, more of a sacrifice, and that's that's good. <clears throat> uh, Luke 
16.10, One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. So again, it, it can work both ways. No passage probably gets to the heart of giving like Second Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 5. Let's turn over there if you would. That's just one of the great passages on all this. In Second Corinthians Chapter 8, let's just read the first five verses. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction. Now, that's the setting in which the givers are in. In For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So Paul is impressed because people who are being under great affliction and extreme poverty have been so generous. And that, that's, a, that's a, a display of the love for the Lord that, that others could not give. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of the, but of their own accord, Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Perhaps Paul wasn't even going to ask them because of their situation. And they said, no, we want to do this. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So they gave, uh, it would appear perhaps they gave their regular offerings and then this was on top of it. It's just an amazing example of of giving that pleases the Lord. If the Lord puts you in financial straits, not because you're spending carelessly, but because of the Lord's providence, then that might mean you 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 can't give as normal. You know, you know, I'm not trying to be legalistic here. If, If the Lord just takes all your money, your income away for a while, and you you don't know what you're going to do, and you perhaps are dependent upon somebody else, and I, I don't think anyone expects you to be giving uh, on any consistent basis anyway, right? But then you get back to work when you can, and then, because one of the reasons we work, and Paul brings this out, is we work so that no, we're not, we don't want to be a burden to anybody else, and so that we can be uh, there to help somebody and if we're always on a burden and we can't ever, uh, you know, get to a point where we can help other people, well, who wants that, right? So that should be our goal, to, to be self-sufficient as the Lord allows us so that we can give to the Lord's work. And that just only makes sense. <clears throat> and then in verses 2 through 4 of our text, in First Corinthians 16, it says, When I arrive, I'll send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to the church. In other words, so the church has the the uh, authority to decide who is going to be trusted with the gift, and they, th- this this is not Paul telling them they have to do anything. That he's, he's the church still has the final say, and it's important to bring that up. It was given at the church for the church to distribute. It is not saying that each was to keep it at home necessarily, but to bring it to church so that he wouldn't have to take up a collection later. But this is not to say that you can't give to other things on your own, but our weekly obligation is to the church with those strings attached. You give it to the church, and then the church decides what to do with it. I've been in 
I've seen situations where people have said, well, I, uh, I want to give a large sum to the church, but here's how you're going to spend it. They got strings attached to it, and that's always a dangerous thing. No, you give it to the church. And you say, well, I don't trust the, the church leadership uh, to, to spend it wisely. Then find a church that you do trust. But give it to the church. Give it to the Lord. You, uh, you, if you don't withhold it if the church doesn't give it exactly the way you want it to be. I, I know a man right now. I was talking to him not too long ago, and he's a he's a great Christian guy. In some, you know, I mean, he's a Christian. He he's a businessman though. He's he's used to budgets. He's he's used to being to to uh, you know being very serious about money, and, and and that's been his occupation for years. And he was going to a church where they just uh, they. There was no good leadership, and, and the money was being spent just not very ways that he liked, and he quit going. And he told me, "I, I just can't take it." And, I, and uh, he admitted. I talked to him. I said, it's, you know, "You've got a problem, not the church, because it's not. You need to worry about how the church spends the money. Not if it's bad, it's bad, and that's one thing. But just because they don't do it the way you like it, doesn't mean it's a bad church, you know." And he had to work through that. It's it kind of funny that. But um, we, we, we give it to the church. And uh, we want to have an attitude, as we do in our family, that we're, we want our church to prosper. We want our church to do well. I remember a deacon who in my first church, who uh, he didn't like something I said Sunday morning, so he didn't show up Sunday night. That was his way of protesting it. I was talking, because I, I said something about the political candidate at the time and stand on abortion and, that negated to me my vote to vote for someone like that. And well, in his mind, you can't ever mention politics in the pulpit. That's just a complete no-no. No, there's no, I can't find that in scripture, but you know, that was how he was. So, so I'm not going to show up Sunday night. Just to let you know that I didn't like that. Well, I think there's, there's an attitude problem here. That isn't how people who love each other act. And again, if there's a good reason to quit giving and not supporting the services, then I would say find a church that you can support. Then, fourthly, uh, verse 4. So here we see the safeguards that are put in place in the local church. Not only is the church to be part of the process of how the funds were used, but in this case, only the local church is. Paul says, here's what we want to do. If you want to give towards that, then it's up to you. The, the local church has autonomy, and that's, of course, as Baptist, uh, we uh, have been probably the, the, the denomination or the, the churches that would have pushed that the most through church history. <clears throat> I don't say it's a sin to have a, a Presbyterian, for instance, a Presbyterian form of church where you've got a synod who kind of <clears throat> can tell the churches what to do in a lot of cases. You know, I'm not going to say that's a sin, but I don't think it really has any good precedent in Scripture. Because you say, well, what about the Jerusalem Council? Well, they were the apostles. That was a little bit different. The apostles could go around and could lay some heavy burdens on churches because they were apostles. But we don't have apostles today. And even, but we see here that most of the time, even the apostles, they made appeals to churches. They had votes. Uh, in the churches, the churches, the local church was autonomous. 
I think that's biblically what we can defend the easiest. But it doesn't mean that denominations and associations are bad because denominations merely take money uh, in, in a cooperative way and do more with it than individual churches can. There's nothing wrong with that, but that is as long as the local church doesn't have to give up their autonomy. And uh, we feel very strongly about that. <clears throat> well, anyway, so I'm going to address the subject of how much to give next week. You know, I've talked about the motivation, the, the duty and the motivation today, but I want to get a little bit more specific because, as I said earlier, the word tithe really isn't in the New Testament. That's an Old Testament concept, but I think correctly we use the, the concept of tithes and offerings as we give today in the New Testament context. And so I want to try to show from Scripture why, why I believe this is the case. And, you know, the, and the reason it's important because I think it's important that we don't just do things because it's tradition. I mean, there's nothing wrong with tradition, but if you are doing it and you don't understand where the tradition comes from and if it's biblical, then it becomes ritual and it becomes a ritual without meaning. So the, the tradition that we have of paying your tithes and offerings, I think, is a biblical concept. And we've looked a little bit at that today, but we'll kind of continue that and look more closely at it, Lord willing, next week. But giving is not something we must do. It is something that we get to do. And if your attitude is the first, then I want you to get to the place where you are glad to pay your tithes and offerings and that you don't think of it as a duty. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. And I want to just close by reading something that John MacArthur included in his commentary. This is a letter that somebody wrote back in Roman days describing the church. And let's see if it describes us as a church. Let's see if it describes us as individuals. <clears throat> he says, this is uh, Christians in the second century, they walk in humility and kindness, and falsehood is not found among them, and they love one another. They despise not the widow, and they grieve not the orphan. He that hath distributeth liberally to him who hath not. If they see a stranger, they bring him under their roof, and they rejoice over him as if they, he were their brother. For they call themselves brother, not after the flesh, but after the spirit and in God. But when one is poor, passes away from the world, and any of them see him, and he provides for his burial according to his ability. And if they hear that any of their number is in prison or oppressed for the name of their Messiah, all of them provide his needs. And if it is possible that he may be delivered, they deliver him. Now listen to this. And if there is among them a man who is poor and needy, and they have not an abundance of necessity, they will fast two or three days that they may supply the needy with his necessary food. So here's a man who's, who's destitute doesn't have anything to eat. It's not because he won't work. It's because the Lord has brought him to that place. They were willing to give up eating for a couple of days so they have something to share with him. That's Christian giving. And that's Christian sacrifice. And that's something that I think just, that, that was the way Christians were back then. And I hope that we haven't lost that desire to help the needy. 
and again, we could, we could spend a whole sermon just on describing the differences between a welfare society and what a true need is. But at the end of the day, a need is a need. A real need is a real need. Do we have hearts that are willing to sacrifice for the things of God and others? All right, we'll stop there today. Any?